welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith's weekly sermon podcast. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, Jude, Contend for the Faith. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel, contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Almighty God, we earnestly ask you for such deeper fellowship of the Holy Spirit who speaks in the blessed scriptures that when we open them we may perceive his mind in what we read and immediately hear in them his voice to us. We ask you for a quicker understanding in spiritual things, for more desire to understand, a fuller perception of your promise in the church that we may become teachable and may love that which you will teach us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Jude begins this passage, so looking at verse 14, quoting from the apocryphal book of 1 Enoch. 
It's a saying that is attributed to the seventh descendant of Adam, the son of Jared, the father of Methuselah. Yes, that Methuselah. And we often remember Methuselah, right, because of his age, but we should remember Enoch because it is in the line of descendants of Adam that this was only said of Enoch. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That's worth remembering. But in our passage today, interestingly enough, Jude does not direct us to the piety of Enoch, nor his mysterious rapture, but instead his prophecy. Translating Enoch's words into a New Testament context, Jude connotes, or rather emphasizes, the imminence of Christ's return and the certainty of divine judgment. We see that here in just these two short, these few verses, 14, 15, and 16. Even the tense of the verb, the Lord comes, connotes the ever-present reality of our Lord's second advent. His coming, but not as a sacrificial lamb, but as the Lion of Judah. Jesus said that on that day, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And our Lord will indeed judge the world. And He has a mission for His holy ones, for His angels. In fact, Scripture says that on that day, they have two missions that they will accomplish. The first is to gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and to the ends of heaven. The second thing that they will do is they will gather all causes of sin and all lawbreakers to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Judgment Day is a reality. Judgment Day will come. And on that day, all, not some, All of the injustices of this world will be called in to account. And those certain people that Jude began this book with, this letter with, those certain people who have crept in unnoticed into the church, who Jude says were long ago designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ, they shall surely be judged for their demonic deception. In fact, Jude says that they are designated or predestined for eternal judgment. And it's, it's a really hard description at the beginning of this book A description that's not given to us for prescription, but for us to know that our merciful God, who keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. And so Jude's words should be frightening to the deceivers in Christ's church. 
but they're not listening. We are. And we hear the words, not frightening, but as encouragement in the fact that our God is just and our God will punish sin. Until that day, we must not lose heart. And it is very easy to lose heart when you see all of the injustices in the world. To think, where is the coming of the Lord? How can this be happening in my day? We must not lose heart. For we are waiting for, and I love the way the Apostle Paul puts this to Titus. We are waiting for, quote, our blessed hope. That's worth memorizing. Our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And our blessed hope then is summed up, what's summed up in the words of Enoch here. Behold, the Lord comes. And so I want to start here with what we would call the imminence of Christ's return. The imminence of Christ's return. Now here is the problem. The problem is, is whether in times of affluence or suffering, it is easy to forget the imminence of Christ's return. And what I mean by that is, is in times of, that are good, we're lulled into complacency, enjoying God's common grace and the blessings that He gives us. It is easy to pass a day or two or a week or a year and not think about the imminence of Christ's return. But it is also the case in suffering. Because in suffering, we can be so consumed with our pain and agony that we forget that Christ indeed will return. And, and so in both of these cases, it is easy to forget. But Scripture is very clear. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Thank you, Gary. Huh? That wasn't the last trumpet. But that was a great trumpet, right? But at the last trumpet, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Theologically, we refer to this moment as imminent. What that word means is that it is likely to happen at any moment. Listening to those who twist and contort Scripture into a timetable of arrival is a fool's errand. Christ made it very clear. Concerning the day and hour, no one knows. That is a Semitic expression, an idiom that includes... No one knows the weeks, the months, the years, the centuries. Guess who knows? No one but the Father. He who holds the future has chosen not to disclose to us, as it's described in Acts, the times and the seasons that are fixed in eternity past. But they will come, as Paul said to the Thessalonians, it's going to come like a thief in the night. We must then be ready as Jesus commands. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 
But this does not mean we won't know when it comes. Scripture is also quite clear on this. Jesus says, as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And the Apostle Paul, or rather John, records in Revelation, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him. Every eye in that moment will see Christ's coming. There will be no secret rapture. No one will be left behind. But every soul in heaven on earth will know of Christ's coming instantaneously. And then judgment. The church will not be whisked away to leave the nation of Israel here on planet earth to return to the works of the law. What an affront to the gospel. But he who saves us by his grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will come on the literal last day. And he will judge the living and the dead. And no one whether Jew or Gentile, will have merited salvation to save them from the wrath of God. No one. And so divine judgment is certain. Divine judgment is a certainty. The Apostle Paul describes judgment day not only as coming like a thief in the night, but he also describes it with what I would call cosmic consequence. He says this, The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And it is a fearful description of what awaits the ungodly. And it is a certain reality for us all. The judgment of our Lord will be executed, and it will be final. Conviction will be pronounced. Jude says that our Lord comes to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. You've got that text in front of you. Note the repetition of the word all. Judgment on all. All the ungodly. All their deeds. You see, on judgment day, divine judgment will be comprehensive. It will be all-encompassing. Not only must we all appear before the judgment seat of Christ... But every sin will be judged. As Jesus said, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. But there's something else I want you to note in this short passage today. In addition to the word all, the word ungodly. Jude repeats it. All the ungodly, deeds of ungodliness ungodly way and the intentionally redundant ungodly sinners. I mean, it's, it's a noun, a verb, and an adjective describing a disregard or lack of reverence for God. Such a description echoes 
Jude's introductory accusation against the deceivers as ungodly people. How are they characterized? They pervert the gospel of God. Such a description then points to their deeds. The previous verses we see the way of Cain, Balaam's error, Korah's rebellion. But here, Jude adds to those deeds, to it, harsh things spoken. Harsh things spoken. In other words, they not only act in ungodly ways, but their graceless words reveal their lack of reverence for God and their denial of our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. It is no wonder that Jude, in this passage, echoes the prophets. Woe to them, Jude says. And so what of us? And so what of us? Are we not sinners too? If all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, what hope have I? And how can Scripture direct us to see Christ's return very differently than the unrepentant? How am I taught to hope in something that sounds like the most frightening thing in history? Because it is. I love the way the Westminster Shorter Catechism summarizes Scripture on this topic. Listen to these beautiful words. At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Look, we're memorizing the Shorter Catechism as a church this year. If you're behind, get number one and skip to number 38. Because the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And number 38 says, hey, we need it again, don't we? At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment, and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God for all eternity. When Christ returns and we are resurrected, body and soul, in glory, there will be no question of who or whose we are. For our glory is in Christ's glory, who is resurrected from the dead. And when Christ returns... It will be said, he or she is in Christ. A beautiful New Testament prepositional phrase. In Christ. And that expression will meet its final consummation. Everything in the Christian life is in Christ. And then that day, in Christ, will be revealed. And we who are in Christ will be openly acknowledged and acquitted, we will be found not guilty. <laughs> acquitted by the judge. A judge 
and whose blood was shed. By a judge who bore the wrath of God for our sin. A judge who will judge us righteous only for the righteousness of Christ. And in the perfect blessedness of glory, we will glorify and enjoy God forever. This is the essence of what Paul calls our blessed hope. That's the essence of our blessed hope. And Satan hates it. I mean, he hates it. And he will seek to undermine it. And he'll send forth his deceivers who do not fear God's judgment and seek to deceive his church. Satan's strategy is subtlety. And therefore, it is insidious. Once inside the church door and comfortably accepted as one of the members, deceivers become, and I quote, grumblers, malcontents, Following their own sinful desires. And you know, when you think about it, I, I mean, I mean that, that, that's brilliant, isn't it? I mean, that is a brilliant strategy of the enemy. And what I mean by that is, is that it's brilliant because grumbling undermines our hope. If I am encouraged in the church to align with a grumbler and a malcontent to succumb my fleshly, to my fleshly emotions rather than be led by the Spirit, I will quickly lose hope in Christ's coming because I will be led to fixate on myself and my circumstances. And when I'm busy focusing on myself and my circumstances, I am not thinking about the imminence of Christ's return. And you're not either. The word translated grumblers and malcontents in the Greek, and it's more obvious in the Greek, they're a pair. They're a couple. And when I was studying that, I'm like, well, of course they're a couple. Of course they're a pair because malcontents grumble. It makes sense, doesn't it? The topics vary, but their unhappiness does not vary. Discontented with their lives, they consistently complain about their lot in life. In fact, of all the commentaries that I've used in Jude, in working through this rather difficult, short book, the expression, unhappy with their lot in life, is repeated over and over and over again when it refers to these deceivers. In fact, one commentator says this, quote, they are bitter people who feel like victims. They are bitter people who feel like victims and so they grumble in hopes of gathering sympathetic other grumblers. Want to grumble? Come on over here. Let's grumble together, right? But their grumbling has a bite to it. Because under it, there is animosity. Directed toward the church's elders, like Korah's rebellion. Or to the church at large, like Balaam's error. Or toward another, like the way of Cain. Ultimately, though, they are angry at God. They cannot they will not, they refuse to accept the providence of God. 
And part of the reason for this is they are enslaved to their emotions and desires, which is revealed in their boasting and favoritism. In fact, the way this is translated in the ESV, I don't think is quite as clear as it is in the original Greek. The two words that are used here may be translated arrogance and flattery, which I think are far more clear in this context. The deceiver's arrogance is exhibited in their disrespect for and dishonoring authority in the church. Their flattery is put to work in gathering a following those who are disgruntled, those who would oppose authority in the church. As one commentator explains, flatterers go after those who can help them accomplish what they lust for, using others while pretending to be their friend. All they want is what? They want, and they will manipulate everyone they can to get what they want. Discerning Christians are not deceived by such flattery. Mature Christians who are grounded in the Word of God are not led astray because they hear the grumbling and they recognize the malcontent. We know that flattering words tickle the ears. But we also know that those same words can deceive the mind. And we know that the malcontented grumbling is incongruent with the gospel we believe. Rooted in the gospel. We know that the deceiver comes to steal. But by God's grace, God pardons all our sins. And accepts us as righteous in His sight. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Received by faith alone. Rooted in the gospel. We know that though the deceiver comes to kill. By God's grace. We are received into the number. And have a right of the privileges of the children of God. Rooted in the gospel. We know that the deceiver comes to destroy but by God's grace, we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. And we are enabled by His Spirit more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Not giving an ear to grumbling malcontents and their arrogant flattery, we direct our focus to Christ and Christ alone. In whom and through whom we have assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy of the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and perseverance to the end. For behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly. And so we look. Not with fear, but with hope. Our blessed hope. For at the resurrection, we will be raised up in glory. Openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment. And made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, 
this is indeed our hope. The final consummation of our salvation. That which was begun in us, you say in Scripture, will be brought to completion. And we see that it will be brought to completion in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so our blessed hope rests firmly on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is in Him and Him alone that we trust. Not only for our salvation, but so also for the final consummation. O Lord Jesus, come. Come quickly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org. Dot org.